Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. This episode is with Christy Tate, an award-winning writer and essayist. Her work has been published in the New York Times, you should read her brilliant modern love piece, the Washington Post and many others. Her debut memoir, Group, How One Therapist and a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life, is an absolutely incredible read. It was published in 2020 and it was a Reese Witherspoon's book club pick and a New York Times bestseller. It is a refreshingly original memoir about self-discovery, loneliness, love and group therapy. Christy is struggling with her work, life, relationships and her mental health is deteriorating when she decides to join a psychotherapy group where she has to share her innermost thoughts with six complete strangers. In turn, she finds human connection and herself again. And it's one of the most inspiring memoirs I've read in years. And I am so thrilled that I got to talk to her all about it. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation. I loved speaking to Christy. And if you did, please do go and leave a little rating if you can. And here is the episode. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This is a highlight. I loved Group and I've been sort of nervous to talk to you because this isn't just a memoir that you read and then put down. This has stayed with me. It's beautiful. It's so incredible. And it reminded me actually of how I felt when I first read Wild by Cheryl Strayed. I don't know if anyone's said that to you yet, probably, but it's um yeah, it's a it's a beast of a book. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So when it came out, because I felt like maybe you had a slightly different experience to most debut authors, because did you know that Reese Witherspoon, for example, had picked it for the book club before it came out? What was it like knowing that immediately people were going to read this, this this wasn't going to be a book that grew slowly? Right. I mean, that was our originally we thought I'm nobody knows me. And so I thought it would be just like I hoped for a slow burn. And then we found out at the end of July that um, Reese's Book Club had picked the book. And I didn't, you know, on some level, right, that that's going to change the trajectory because Reese has obviously an amazing platform and so many readers and fans of hers want to know what she's doing and will do what she does. And so I don't think I understood the full impact. Um, And I don't think I really was able to appreciate it probably for like at least a week or so it was just such a meteor, meteor-like <laughs> experience, and it was really fun. And I, the whole time, I just kept praying to be present because you only get—I mean, this this is a, a lightning strike, literally. And I wanted to really be in the gratitude and the savoring, and not be thinking, "What's next?" or "How do I look?" You know? <laughs> yes, definitely. And I mean. I read somewhere that you'd spent a long time on the book, around five years, is that right? And when you're reading it, I mean, I thought this is clearly a book that had a lot of time spent on it because it is so well written. And I just wanted to hear about that process. Like, how did you keep yourself motivated over that stretch of time? Because I don't know about you, I'm very impatient as a writer and just, just leaning into that process is hard sometimes. Yeah, it was definitely painful because I you know I want immediate gratification I had I I think that it when I look back now it feels like there's there was just like magic dust over it but truly when I remember back to there were certain points there was so much despair 
like any writing project. I mean, from an essay to a whole book link um, project, like I spend a lot of time in the, the true depths of darkness. And with this project, it's sort of, I could see the outline. Now I had two novels I'd written before that were terrible and they went straight to the drawer. And I felt despair about that, of course. And then I took time off and I was reading all about arcs, things I didn't know about, like arcs and conflict, <laughs> things that needed to be in a book. And I had a moment, like an epiphany, where I was like, oh, I can see the arc, but instead of a novel, I could see it with my relationship to therapy and group. And I saw, like, I started here, I ended up in a totally different place, and here's what happened. And I could, I could sort of map that out, like very loosely on a post-it note. And I just wrote towards that and I had to take long breaks from it, like six months and just write. Sometimes I don't know how you are with writing your books. It's like, sometimes I would just need to step away. I just needed a win somewhere along the way. Like I needed one 1700 word essay to go somewhere and to do something and to be finished because a book takes so long. So I think that helped. And then I just think what really took me all the distance were the people around me who like just held me, of course, my group that's written about, but also like I had connected with writers who, who know the particular pain of trying to get a book into the world and trying to tell a story, trying to be honest and also artistic. Like all of those things are really hard. And if I hadn't had writing mates and group mates, I would have abandoned it way back, way back. That makes so much sense, though, because I suppose you're writing a book about other people. I, d I mean, I know that Dr. Rosen, that's not his real name. Did yeah. you use kind of fake names for everyone? Did it feel like you could write about them without them feeling like they were going to be totally exposed? Yeah, I definitely I changed everybody's name, even my husband's name. And he's like, that's weird. <laughs> it's like, it just seems <laughs> like everyone just gets to have, gets to keep their name. And I, I'm all for exposing myself and my story, but I wanted the other people in the story, including people who went to therapy, not, not knowing that some day in the future, their group mate was going to write a story about what happened there. And so a big part of that was disguising and being careful to disguise people, but also I was very careful, like if somebody in my group has one kind of job and I was going to give them a different kind of job, right? But I wanted, but it matters, right? It matters what, how people move through the world. And so if somebody was, um, was worked in a funky bookshop, I wasn't going to make them an obstetrician. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it had to be sort of lateral because the way that we interacted in group was so intimate. It, all of those biographical factors had actual weight in the relationship. So that part was really tricky. Yeah, it's I, I'm always fascinated by memoir because even though this happened to you and these people are real and this is such a moving, raw story, it's also just crafted very, very beautifully. And obviously it's not, memoir is not diary. It's, it's actually storytelling and... I wondered if you felt like you could have a bit of distance from it in, in that way. It's not exactly like it's fictionalized, but did you feel like there's a barrier a little bit? Yeah, I think there were two barriers. One was by the time I started writing this, I was way outside of the events of the story. Like I already, I'd been married five or six years. And um, so there was the distance and it could almost feel like I became a character 
and it had happened to me, but I'm not the same person I was in 2001. And so that was helpful. And also reading what other writers have said about memoir, just to understand the stakes and just to have some language to talk about it. And Carmen Maria Machado, who's in the dream house was an amazing and stunning memoir. She talks about memoir is an act of resurrection. And that word just sort of like struck me and it's imaginative. And when I understood that this was gonna be a product of imagination and anytime you set a story from your head to, or real life onto paper, you're making so many choices. You, you've corrupted the story in a sense to, to contain it on the page. And so all of those sort of artistic truths helped me understand that I was making art, not writing a documentary of events and group. Yes, totally. Because I knew I was going to interview you. Obviously, you're a real person. But whilst reading it, I just I just felt like this was a character on a hero's journey who was discovering herself. And I think that's maybe how other people see themselves in you kind of as, you know, we all see ourselves on that journey, I suppose, which is why it's quite an emotional read for in many places. But for anyone listening who doesn't know what group therapy is, I wondered if you could just give us a bit of a lowdown for people that haven't read it yet, and you should definitely go and get your copy. What are the kind of main differences between traditional therapy and group therapy? The, the one thing that stood out to me, and I was like, God, that's fascinating, is just this idea of no uh, secrets and the confidentiality rule kind of goes out the window. Right. So that that is definitely the main difference. When you go to your group therapy session, there are other patients sitting there. <laughs> so that's super different. Right. Um, and I wasn't into it when I first heard about it. What made me motivated was pain. And I had seen other people. Something had changed in them and there was a radiance about them. And I wanted that for myself. And so and it was cheaper. I mean, I was a student. I didn't have a lot of money for like endless hours of analysis. And so I thought, okay, let's get this going. Um, and one of the things, and all group, not all group therapists practice like Dr. Rosen, of course, but one of the things that I understood when I came in, I still understand it to be how he operates is he does not impose on the group members a rule of confidentiality. And in so, I've talked to other therapists, right? And what they do is you come into the group and you sign a contract. I will not have contact with other group members outside of the group. Keep everything contained in the group in the group room. And the other one is sign a thing that you will not sign a confidentiality agreement. I won't talk about my group mates problems in my blog to my husband, whatever. And Dr. Rosen does neither of those things. And now he's as a, you know, board certified psychiatrist, he has to hold everyone's confidence, but I can talk about what Patrice said and, or I can go to a different group. I mean, many times in this book, I was in more than one group. So I could talk about what someone said in the Monday group. I could go talk about it on Wednesday. And I understand the theory to be that holding secrets, even if they seem benign, like why would it be tragic for me not to tell you what happened in Patrice's marriage? But holding those secrets is a way to foster shame. And inevitably, when you're holding a secret, you are holding at least some sliver of shame. And as many of the people who see Dr. Rose and myself included, have addiction, either mine was food, but other people have alcohol, gambling, debt, there's sex, you know, there's some much more fun ones <laughs> that I've encountered. Um, but holding shame is a way to drive addiction. 
And that's something that we're trying to undo in group. And it's super uncomfortable. I, I think it works. My life shows it works for me, but it's probably, it's not for everybody. Oh, it's so, it's so interesting and so empowering in terms of the book, because I guess we, we meet you in the first, very first pages, completely feeling very, like the weight of your own secrets are weighing you down. And so just to see that freedom come to you in action is, is very, it's, it makes you kind of made me reflect on my own life and the secrets that I hold that aren't even big secrets. It's like, why am I doing this to myself? And it reminded me of Martha Beck, the amazing life coach who says that she lives blackmail free. So like no one can hold anything over her head. She's like, yes, I left the Mormon community. Yes, I did this thing. And then this thing, like she sort of says, anyone can say anything about you at that point. Totally. I love her. And you know, I love your point about um, some of your secrets don't seem like a big deal. Like that was the, the the bulk of my eating disorder, my big hairy secret. It's why I lived alone. It's why I thought I didn't have a relationship is because of how I ate, which was when I finally said it, which is at night, I eat from six to sometimes 12 red delicious apples, which is bizarre, but it's not a reason not to be loved or in friendship with other people. But because it was a secret, it had turned moldy and distorted and phantasmagoric in my mind. And I, in my mind, it was equated with like pedophilia or destroying the earth. Like I just, I had no perspective because it was a secret. And the weird thing is that when we share secrets, like this one that you that you thought was huge at the time and I bet sharing it in a group everyone's like I've got a worse one or that's you know they're just like shrugging it off and it's just this feeling of it's almost infectious we all want to share our secrets when one person shares even if you're at a dinner party you just see everyone go around the table want to share theirs totally it's a it's a great way to sort of drop down from the surface level into some things people can't see and people are hungry for that. They're hungry for one way to say it is vulnerability, but show me what it is I can't see about you. And then it's harder to it's harder for me to project on other people once I know a little bit more about what's beneath the surface. And the and Dr. Rosen is I feel like at the heart of this book. He just sounds like the absolute best. And I love that you show him as a real person. I see and read about therapists in books and we always see therapists in tv shows and in films and they're just like this untouchable person i love that he is real and flawed and 3d and was that important for you to show a hundred percent i i really i mean he obviously is a huge part of the book and the group and i love my groupmates and they've given me as much as dr rosen has but he's the authority figure. He sets the tone. He holds the groups that I have been a part of. And to your point, it, it has it had been very disappointing for me to understand him as flawed, as sometimes missing things or having blind spots or making mistakes. That was devastating when I realized he was a real person. But it was also kind of where the true healing began in my relationship with like authority figures and like, he's a stand in for parents and teachers and bosses and to have him come in and say, Oh, Christy, I'd like to make amends. I messed up what I didn't re- like to have a, I'd never experienced like authority figures owning their part, owning their fear 
And I think that I don't know that I would have lasted as long in group if I if he had been a removed blank slate granite type of a man. I don't think that's not that compelling to me. I'm not interested in that. Yeah, it's like he would break open so everyone else could. It kind of reminded me of when you read parenting books and it always says that the parents should show themselves doing something like making amends or being a good person by um you know by example rather than just telling other people to you know pull themselves together absolutely and when I think about I I when I watch myself do my parenting or have the third eye view of what I do with my children I mean it came straight from what I've watched Dr. Rosen do with me and my group mates which is own imperfection to say his feelings like and to not just say you should just like you said, like to tell them what to do say, well, when I was in this position, this is what this is what tripped me up or whatever to join them instead of like speaking from on high. Totally. And the book just made me feel really warm and fuzzy in places because I think, you know, we're in this weird time in history at the moment where a lot of us are so alone. We're so removed from our friends and family and just the idea of sitting in the park, even with like six of my friends at the moment, I'm just like living for that. But it was interesting that you were part of a writing group, for example, and then it, and then you sort of joined the, the group. Do you think it needs to go in stages for someone who is used to being very kind of introverted and alone if they wanted to try this? Oh, yeah. I just think, I mean, the events of the book took place over seven years. And I love, that's one of the things about therapy that I feel like popular culture is misleading or, or I just don't fit the mold, like 30 days, 60 days, like I kept for a year, a year of therapy, I'll be fixed, right? I'll have a boyfriend, I'll have friends, I'll go on a trip with my girls. It's like, that's just, I wasn't there. Like I had to take little baby steps. And some of the things that I think early on were like being willing to make a commitment, not even to like group therapy, but like, could you join a book club that meets once a month? You know, there's research that shows even having a commitment just once a month that you commit to show up that has some social component. Um, and if, if reading's not your thing, right? There's all kinds of clubs or sports or whatever, hiking. Um, even that will boost your like perception of happiness and well-being because being connected, I mean, loneliness now is as dangerous as smoking, they say. So any small steps to where where. I would ask myself, where could I say yes? Where could I join other people? And the pandemic obviously makes it like so, so hard, but I'm also seeing people do it. Like people are jumping on Zoom, people are figuring out in places where it's safe to take a social distance walk or if the weather's getting nice, just small steps towards yes, towards other people. That's where I think that's where the getting better starts to happen. That is so true. And that's really, really good to hear right now, because just the tiniest steps, they they do make a difference and ladder up. And it reminded me of um, how I really want to I really want to do yoga classes. That's my thing for like post lockdown. But I went to one a few years ago and I sat at the back and everyone was amazing at it. And I like had the wrong mat and I kept falling over and I never went back. And I'm thinking, 
you know, it's okay to be put off by things, but like you kind of have to keep trying. You're like, it's not going to be perfect the first time you ever go to something. Yeah, that's really true. And I, I was talking to another friend recently. We we're talking about connection right now when it feels, I personally, I mean, I live in a house with my two children and my husband, but I'm so deeply lonely um, and it's not their fault. They are doing their things. And I miss, I miss all the, I miss the doorman at my office. Like I don't get to go to off my office, like many, many people. And I feel like I've had to go out of my comfort zone. Like I hate the phone. I don't want to talk on the phone. Don't call me. <laughs> like you can send me a text or whatever, but I started making phone dates with friends because I want to hear their voice. I want to spend time with them. And I, sometimes I don't want to sit in front of the computer screen. Like I want to go walk in my neighborhood and I want to have a connection that's deeper than, yeah, the pandemic sucks. What are you watching on Netflix? You know, I just need more and my soul is hungry for it. And one thing that I've done is because scheduling is so hard, right? And then it's things get dropped off. It's like, oh, I can't do Tuesday. How about Thursday? Blah, blah, blah. And then you go back and forth and it gets dropped. What I've done with um, three friends is we just have a set time every week and we just plug in. So we take away all the emails about, sorry, can't blah, blah, blah. And that's just really, I look forward to those hours. Those are like stakes in my week that I know are coming every week. And that's really helped just reduce my feeling of like despair and loneliness. I love that. I love that. That reminds me of a self-help book I read once, which said that you just need to make a decision once. So like make the decision, don't make lots of little decisions about meeting up on Zoom, just make one. And it sounds like that's what you've done, picked one time. Yeah. That's so, so good. One thing just on the, on the therapy topic before I ask you about other things, but with what you just said about ther- therapy not being linear, because, you know, not that there's any spoilers necessarily in a memoir because it's your life and it's happened, but, you know, you're getting to the end of the book and this isn't a like, I'm suddenly fixed type of ending. And we all have that. That's the whole point, isn't it? You know, before COVID, I felt really sorted. <laughs> and then this happened and I'm like, oh my God, I'm like me from four years ago and I've undone all my work. But actually that's just life. And I found that very uplifting. And I just thought you now having written the book and everything that's happened, are you, you're still in that place, I'm guessing of, you know, you're still managing you as a person. Yeah, that's another thing that I feel like stories about therapy get, it doesn't match my life. It doesn't match my experience. Like I don't, I I don't have a sense of like, I'm graduated. I don't ride around Chicago wishing for death. I don't do that anymore. That is true. So I have grown and changed and come to a lighter place in my life, but I still need help. I still want support. I still have to do really hard things. You know, like when I was desperately single and socially anorexic to the hilt, I couldn't imagine going on a date. And now I'm married to a wonderful man. We have two kids, but now I have no idea how to manage aging parents that live four States away or conflict with people in my life or trying to build a creative life when I already have a law career like these are all things I don't know how to do and I'm still me I'm still neurotic I still am prone to black and white thinking and running to despair when it's not necessarily warranted and so I I don't ever hear about I have never seen a story where someone just sort of stays in therapy. It's sort of like the up and out model. That's not how I see it working at Dr. Rosen. That's, I mean, I'm still there. It's tw- I'm 20 years in and I, I want to 
just, I want people to know that that's an option that you don't have to like hurry up and get well and leave. You could become attached and you could decide to stay. Like that's a story too. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it is a version of the story that I've just never seen. And when I don't see something, I tend to feel shame about it. Like, oh, there's something wrong with how we do it. Like this is a cult. There, there's reasons to say that and to question that, but there's also a way to talk about other ways of doing therapy and how long the relationship could last. Yes, makes so much sense. And I know it's not the same, but I always think about like going to the dentist or something. You don't just say, oh, you know, I'll never come back now. My teeth are fine today. And you, you know, you always have to like check in as much as you want to, I guess. And yeah, it makes so much sense. Um, but I wanted to ask you quickly, you just touched on it there, but um, I love talking to people who have multiple things going on and you are, you're still a lawyer, are you? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And writer. And I listened to a podcast you were on a while ago where you uh, spoke about how you blogged back in the day when it was really nice on the internet. Yeah. And um, I just wondered, yeah, how, how do they all fit in together? And do you enjoy that mix? Yeah, that's a great question. I think early on, I was a lawyer and then I had some children and I was a different kind of lawyer because it was the first kind of lawyer I was, was like super hard charging and give it all. And I had no constraints because I had nothing, I had no life. So I was like, well, sure. What other than therapy. Right. Um, And then, you know, and then this, this call to create was really born inside of me. And it started right around the time that right around the time that I got married and that's when I started blogging and I really, really enjoyed it. And it fed a piece of me that I think had been dormant and just on hold, like a lot of parts of my life were just like under paralysis because I was hard charging as an attorney and trying to sort through my personal life. And once that stabilized, this whole longing occurred to me. And I really find that having the writing to balance the law career, which is how I have my dental insurance. And, you know, like, that's a whole part of me too. And I've always felt, I, I feel a little tension about that, but I think it's because we have a lot of myths of like, who gets to be a true artist. It's the, it's the woman who has a garret or, you know, a lot for years and years and years, it was a man, right. Who's got a trust fund or is part of the establishment. Like I'm not part of any establishment in publishing at all. I I don't have like credentials and pedigrees along those lines. And so having my foot in different places allows me to feed all the parts of myself. And once I conceded, like, I don't have to choose. I don't have to, being a real writer doesn't mean I do it 24 seven. And being a good lawyer or committed lawyer doesn't mean it's the only thing I care and do. It's like just letting go of all those like very constraining ideas about who gets to do what, when that's where the freedom was. And my life just kind of works when I sort of do a lot, because I think I have a lot of energy. It needs to be soaked up (laughs) from different professions, actually, you know, I, I personally would go slightly mad if I just wrote like that's all I did. I think I would put too much pressure on it, maybe. And having like multiple things, you can kind of maybe not take certain bits too seriously. I don't know. I think that's true. I also think because I had so little time, like I never, when I was writing group, I never, most of my writing sessions were like one hour a piece, right? One hour in the morning and try to steal an hour at lunch or in the afternoon. Like I never, one afternoon 
on a Saturday, my husband took the kids somewhere and I tried to do it for a full four hours. And I was like dying. <laughs> I just think that's, that hasn't how, that hasn't been how I have had time. And also something about having lots of constraints. I think that made the time very concentrated. And there's something about the juice of the constraints. Like I got a brief due, I got to pick up the kids, having those like external obligations sort of made me really focus and hungry. It made me hungry. Yeah. And hearing that, I think, would have really inspired me when I was trying to first write, because I always thought, oh, if I'm not uh, taking a sabbatical and renting a cottage, I'm never, ever going to write a novel. And actually, it was always in small bits of time. And I remember Julia Cameron once saying that being obsessed with blocks of time is writer's block, because you start being really obsessed with like, I need hours. And um, yeah, I heard that you say you would email yourself at the end end of every day. And I, I love hearing people's processes like that because it's different for all of us and having lots of bits make up an incredible book at the end of the day. Yes, I love, yeah, first of all, I love Julia Cameron so much. <laughs> we can talk about that later, but um, <laughs> what I love about the practice of, and I still do that to this day, like whatever project I'm working on, I send the email and I put it in that folder in my email. And, you know, sometimes what another way that I engage in a blocking of my own artistic processes, I tell myself, I haven't done enough. I'm not committed. I don't really want it. And then I go back and I can look in that email folder and see, oh my God, 40, there are 40 emails here since in the last two months. I at least touch this enough to change the document and have to email it to myself 40 times. Like it's irrefutable evidence that I do want it. And I'm inching forward inch by inch and now I know I can do it. It's happened. Um, it's a, certainly I have the question, can I do it again? <laughs> yeah, I hope so. But I know that I've done it and that those lies that like, I think Stephen Pressfield calls it resistance, mm-hmm. that that force, he calls it lethal and diabolical. And I think about that when I sit down, I'm like, oh, maybe I only have one book in me or, oh, I came what I was meant to do on this earth publication-wise. Now I just have to be a lawyer. Those are just lies. And those are designed to keep me from moving forward. And I try to just like accept them and then keep moving forward. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's good to be honest, isn't it, about even if something is a huge success, it's really strange on the flip side, what the anticlimax that can sometimes come from big life moments and... Um, I, I was listening to you on another show and you were saying that that period of time after the book comes out is was sort of similar to when you had your first child or maybe it was the host saying that or maybe you were both saying that <laughs> I thought that was really interesting because I get really weirdly down when something big comes out and it's like a strange little grieving process of um, loving the actual process I suppose Oh my God. I'm so happy to hear you say that. And I don't, I I was probably in such a fog whenever I said that about having a baby, but you know, when I I had a taste of this, this post-publication blues, oh my gosh, I had, there was a publication I wanted so bad. I'd sent them probably 11 essays, right? And then one was published 
And I was so happy. My, my husband took a video of me bawling after I talked to the editor when it was clear this was going forward. And I said to him into the camera, I was like, I will never be sad about writing again. I don't care <laughs> anything ever have. This is it. I am. I'm satisfied forever. Thank you. And then the publication came out. I was so excited. I bought the newspaper. I was so happy. And then the next three months were just like a blackout of depression, just total blackout. And I knew it was related. It just, that's just how I, that's how I'm wired. It was my first time reaching a goal after trying 11 times, et cetera. So I was on notice that the post-publication of group, regardless of how it went, was going to get gnarly. And I am here to say it has, (laughs) it has, it is like, there are some days when I feel like, and I don't even know what it is, like physical kind of pain, which I think to your point is grief. Like I know grief to be physical and somatic and I'll go to group and I'll tell the group and Dr. Rosen, something's wrong with me. Like I'm not myself. I don't feel good. Nothing tastes right. And we, we know I don't have COVID. It's not bad. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, some of the things Dr. Rosen is saying to me, I can hear them as if from many miles away. And he says, your identity changed. You've changed now. You've wanted this for so long. Now you've flipped over and you reached you reached a summit of sorts, and so you're just gonna have to grieve. And also, what I've tried to do, I don't know if you have this experience, is like I've tried to outrun the grief by working hard. Oh, I'm gonna write this thing and do an outline and try to find my next book. Grief always wins. It always. It, I I have not taken a break yet, and it's very clear. The time is now. The time is now because I'm. I'm appreciating the words that I'm creating right now, but they're really just a fending off of still quiet moments where I reckon with everything that's just happened. Yes. Yeah. And it's so crazy, isn't it? That on so many interviews, when people are promoting a book, mostly that the interviewer will ask at the very end, what's next? And I always find that question, it's like a fine question, but Sometimes I'm like, God, we really are in this culture of like, next, next, next. And I'm trying to really push back myself on that at the moment and sit with it. Yeah, I love the conversation that you had with um, the author of My Dark Vanessa. Y'all talked about that. And I was was like making my morning tea and I was listening and y'all got on the subject. Her name's like Elizabeth Cates. Kate Elizabeth Russell yeah Kate Elizabeth, yeah okay yeah. Um, and I loved her book and I was like the, I was so with you guys and y'all got on this topic and she was getting ready to say what's next right and I was so hoping <laughs> I was like so hoping she would say I'm taking a break I'm breathing I'm taking walks I'm learning how to repair bicycles I don't know just like you know like when they say just do something else creative and she's like it's going really well I don't want to jinx myself but and I was like oh she's not having a hard time at all (laughs) and I don't know she's farther along in her process from her debut than I am but I I too am so hungry for some kind of like real raw talk about what this period feels like like my my book has been out for four months and I some days I'm like this is great I can't wait to like dive into my next project. And some days I'm just in despair. Where is it? Where is it? What is it? And I try to write something and it's like, that's not it. And I just, the not knowing feels very uncomfortable. And the truth is I don't know. 
And exactly, you've got to wait for that moment where it feels right, doesn't it? Because like you say, when you've written a book, and like with Kate, she obviously wrote My Dark Vanessa over 12 years. So I was thinking, oh my God, you know, if it's another 12 years, we're going to wait. That's fine. But for someone who obviously wants to create, that's a long time. But something I listened to recently that is a really good listen for this is Michaela Cole Hmm. on Louis Theroux's podcast um, when she brought out May I Destroy You, which has had phenomenal success. She basically she was grieving so much that she now doesn't have an agent. She doesn't answer emails. She's basically gone on pause and she doesn't want to create, she doesn't want to create anything until she's ready. And I just thought that is incredible because she has so many opportunities now and people are like, you know, knocking down her door and she's saying, no, I need time. Oh my God. That is so amazing. I'm so glad that I'm going to go find that because that's exact. I think that's what we're, battling against right like I think it's in our culture like you got to strike while the iron's hot everybody knows your name and it's like those are not the conditions under which I wrote group which I love and it's a it's a call of my heart and so I need to crawl back to the conditions where like nobody knows me this is a story I'm interested and I'm gonna make it beautiful and I'm gonna have to like revisit exposure and privacy and all of those things I think in order to get back to creation yeah and I wonder if this time has made us revalue what that means because when you're stripped away of not being able to go on the tour and like have the fancy lunches and sit on the panels and wear nice dresses which I'm I love and I miss but I think you realize it's not it was never about any of that anyway so actually we've got all the time in the world (laughs) Yeah, yes, that is so I I do think that there's a whole reckoning happening around time and timelines because they're just revealed as false. They're just totally false. And that is there's freedom there. There's like probably a mourning too, but there's great freedom and just like stripping away all the things that are just artifice or not real. Totally. And I don't know if this is maybe something that's in the works, maybe not, but I just wanted to say on this podcast, please, can it be a film? <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. I would love that. Um, there, 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 there's discussions happening. I have told all the people who handle that, like, I don't want to, I, I find it so nerve wracking. And I, if I thought I was a fish out of water dealing with New York publishing, I'm, I'm insane an alien when it comes to like anything with like Hollywood or whatever. And so I've told them when it's time for me to sign something, let me know, but I don't <laughs> want to be involved in the, the minutia because it makes me, I think I, I have a, te- I have a tendency to get my heart set on things. And so if someone tells me something, I'm going to be like racing ahead and then just, just, it'll just set up disappointment. And so I, I too have a hope that one day this could, you know, reach the wider audience and be be on the screen of some sort. I think that would be really fun. And um, I I recognize I have no control over that. Yeah, well, let we put it out there now. I'm I'm all about the manifesting for others. (laughs) (laughs) But I just love that. I love the idea of seeing all the characters on on screen. I just love them. Um, Well, thank you so, so much for this. I knew it would be a bit of a raw episode of me just being telling you everything because the book brings out of people I think it's so special so thank you for writing it oh thank you I've I've had this has been a wonderful conversation and I feel so grateful that 
I've people have written me emails and they they feel empowered or safe to tell me things about their therapy or their eating or their the way they love or or don't love and I feel like it's been I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't know people wrote authors these beautiful emails with like heartfelt messages and information and that has been that's more important than any fancy luncheon or all that other stuff. It's like I carry that in my heart and it's been a real honor. So thank you. Well, for anyone listening who is feeling like they want to connect with someone else today or feeling like they've got any size of a secret to share, this is your reminder to pick up the phone or text someone or pick up Christy's book. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate being here.